Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and where we navigate life together. How are you doing, breathers? Yeah, that's my name for all of you who are taking time to breathe and be in the present moment. I hope you're keeping well and I hope you're taking care of yourself. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Dorothy Ohokon. Today's quote is from Christopher Dines, who wrote the book Drug Addiction Recovery, The Mindful Way. Quote, Understanding why we are afraid to grieve is a prelude to transforming our lives. Getting in touch with our deepest fears and airing them in a safe space can be incredibly liberating. End of quote. What happens to you when you witness your seven-year-old sister knocked down and run over by a van? as you both have alighted from the school bus. You're only 11 years old and she dies on the spot. That's when the darkness in Jeremy's life began. My guest is Jeremy and Danji, and we're seated in my study. It's a bit noisy outside, but we get lost in conversation as Jeremy shares his personal story of trauma and addiction. For 15 years, he has been at rehab three times, and the third time, he made it. He has been sober for eight years now and is passionate about helping people stop their addictions. This is a story about creating coping mechanisms for adults and children, the importance of being present for our children, there's so many nuggets that will get you thinking about how to show up for those you love. Jeremy, welcome. Welcome to No Head Podcast. Thank you. As is our practice, we take a few moments to breathe and bring us into the present moment. Okay. Would you like to join me? Sure. Fantastic. Okay, so we will breathe in to a count of five. We will hold to a count of two. And then we will breathe out slowly to a count of five. And we will do this three times. Let's begin. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly. Breathe in. Hold. Breathe out slowly. We now come back to this present moment. How was that for you? Um, it wasn't new. It wasn't new. We oh. used to do these exercises in Rio. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And you started right into talking about rehab. So tell me, what took you to rehab? Um, 16 years of drug and alcohol abuse. Mm -hmm. I had three trials. And on the third time, I've remained sober since to date, which would be eight years now. Congratulations. Absolutely. That's quite a big milestone. Thank you. What initially took you to rehab? What happened? What was the thing that triggered this moment for Jeremy to start taking drugs? Um, the moment that triggered my addiction was witnessing my sister getting hit by a van, a speeding van in the neighborhood in Kilaleshwa where I grew up. Up to that point, my life was fairly normal um, and family life was normal. How old were you when you witnessed your sister being crushed by this bus? I had to be 11. And how old was your sister? She was 7 at the time. Yeah. And she passed away immediately? She passed away immediately, but because I'd never witnessed death before in my life, 
I didn't understand the concept. I thought maybe she would go to hospital, she would make it. Right. Um, but it was fatal and she died on the road. Yeah, and, and, and that's when the darkness in my life began because mm. I couldn't process as a young child what happened. Were you able to talk to your parents about what you're going through or what was going through in your heart? Well, my mom at the time was very distraught. My dad comes from a very old school African background where males don't speak about feelings or emotions. So when it came to my emotions and how I felt, I never felt I could approach him with how I felt. And my mom was distraught. Um, she tried to seek uh, trauma counseling for me. I went for two sessions and I didn't see the point of talking about it because I could see my father is not talking about it. And your mom, she's also dealing with her own pain. Yes. Was there anyone in the community, you know, in the African community, you've got aunties and everyone is sort of trying to help or did you feel like people just moved on with their lives? I felt people sort of moved on with their lives but it definitely affected my grandparents, my, my mother's parents, because shortly after my sister passed away, my granddad who passed away a year later, then my grandmom followed. So you like lost three people, just one after the other. Yes. So what happened when your grandparents died? Um, actually, my sister was run over by a government vehicle. Oh, wow. What happened was we were coming out of the school bus and there was no conductor crossing the children in those days. And so what happened was my sister crossed in front of the school bus and didn't see the oncoming speeding van coming. And, and the irony of all this is I found out years later that the driver was drunk. So, oh my. And he was a close friend's driver. And this close friend didn't disclose to me until years later, like when I got sober and I came back to the neighborhood after rehab, this friend disclosed to me like, hey, you know, the, the bus that ran over your sister was actually dropping us home. I couldn't tell you at the time because like shortly after you got into addiction, you were with like a wild crowd. So I didn't know if approaching you would be safe at that time. But now I want to tell you this, you know. How did you react? Um, you know, after I'd come from rehab, this is after 16 years of addiction, I came to realize, and also today I'm a counselor myself, mm -hmm. but I realized the approach my counselor used was we had to unpack that whole incident which was left untouched for so many years and figure out how the trauma jump-started this whole addiction and how now to deal with death in future. Because my coping mechanism for losing a friend, because I started losing friends years after that, um, my coping mechanism was to drink, to smoke drugs and not deal. What started, how did you start finding out that drugs could be the way out to cope? Well, it's... And how did you get the drugs? Well, first it started with alcohol. So there was a pending case on negligence, was the school re responsible and back and forth to court. So I was out of school for a period of time. Throughout this period of time, one of my passions and hobbies is I'm a DJ. So I was listening to a lot of um, hip hop music at the time. I had a lot of free time on my hands. My father was a diplomat, so he was flying all over the world on a whim. My mom was also working. So I had all this extra time in the house and first started with my dad's alcohol when I was at the, around the age of 12. Because the, the, the incident of my sister dying would play on in my head constantly. And then I discovered alcohol and um, for once my head was quiet. But I didn't understand that there were consequences with drinking this alcohol. I mean, I was 12 years old, I was a kid. I'd taken, it was almost half a bottle of Johnny Walker. And of course, the next day I was sick, threw up all over the place, and I was actually surprised because I didn't know alcohol 
has any side yeah. effects. My parents were there, but I kind of hid the fact that I was sick. I just mm -hmm. had stomach issue, but I was drinking. I just didn't want them to know. Now it's starting to drink my dad's alcohol. He noticed his, his stock is going down and he confronted me and he was like, you know, this stuff is expensive and you're underage. What are you doing? By the time my dad was confronting me, this was probably four or five months after the fact that now I understand, okay, alcohol has hangovers. I was starting to learn and I mix it with coke now, I can mix it with water. As in, I was teaching myself all these things that probably adults teach themselves. As a child, I wasn't a troublemaker, but I knew how to make trouble, if that makes sense. For example, like, till today, I don't know how to swim, and this is a consequence of forging sick notes from my parents and forging their signatures at probably the age of seven. I was forging my parents' signatures so that I don't have to swim. So when my dad confronted me at age 12, um, I remember a friend of mine telling me, hey, you know, we can, we, ca we can ask the older guys in the neighborhood who are 18, 19 for their IDs, and, and we can print them and put our photos on, and we have IDs, we can buy alcohol. And so at age 12, I did exactly this. I had a fake ID of a guy whose name I won't mention, probably get him into trouble. <laughs> yeah, I had a fake ID and so started buying the alcohol and even some shops knew like these guys are clearly underage but... And even today the culture is these are not our children so... So I started buying alcohol by age 13, uh, 14, already now in the nightclubs of Westlands, Crooked Cues which is still there. The rest, I think, are no longer there. There are a lot of new clubs now. And, and, and started stealing my father's car at the same time. No, my mother's car. My father's car was always under lock and key. Because once I started, like, getting off the good path, he started to suspect. <laughs> so his car was under lock and key, but my mom's car was up for grabs. I remember at age... 14 going to town and and cutting spare keys for her car and for the house the balcony door because mm. my bedroom had a balcony and this was the balcony where i'd jump over um over weekends and i'd climb down the wall get in my mom's car i'd put pillows in my bed just in case she opens the door to check i'd be out with the guys you must have been quite popular then with your the neighborhood friends. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're the one who knew it all. And now I'm in high school and I'm known as the kid who has the car over the weekends and he's drinking and he's smoking weed and he's in the clubs, you know, in the VIP section and but this was taking a toll on my education. And I'm one of those students I before that I was an A plus student, mm. you know. I did well in school. But now my grades started to go down and I started to have less interest in school and for me school now is a place now of meeting girls which will be the party this weekend, you know, that was what school was about. Who needs the, the weed because now I started selling weed in school. Where did you first discover weed? I understand the alcohol, mm -hmm. but how did you discover weed and who was your supplier before you became a supplier? I first smoked my first joint at age 13. There was a house party um, down the road. The older boys of the neighborhood were there and they had already knew me, I'd already started making a name for myself so I was in there with them and at first I thought hey this is a weird looking cigarette um, but on smoking it I realized it had certain effects that a cigarette doesn't have. And, and I remember the first time what I... What were those effects? Tell me. The first time I took weed, there was a lot of laughter, uh, euphoria, and of course the hunger that comes later, what they call the munchies. But something, you hadn't felt that euphoria in a long time since your sister passed away. I hadn't felt this kind of happiness. Right. You know, I would come, I would even get like 
weed on consignment. She'll give me half a kilo on consignment because she knows this guy he'll come tomorrow. Because you're addicted. Yes. And whether he comes with money, if he doesn't have money, he'll come with a cell phone. He'll come with something to make up for because he wants my product. And she knew this for so many years. And so a lot of people in the neighborhood knew, a lot of smokers knew, like, if Jeremy has gone up there, everything is gone. If you weren't cool with me at that time, then it meant you'll have none or you'll have to go to the next neighborhood because there are dealers in all neighborhoods. It was a manufactured happiness I came to learn right. later, got sober. And how long were you in this manufactured state of happiness? I'd say 15 years, a good 15 years 15 of my years. life. Yes. Wow. And this time, what's happening at home? Are your parents able to deal with this Jeremy who has this manufactured happiness once in a while? Um, my father, being a diplomat and being very like a straight shooter, it reached a point he didn't want to deal. So my mom had to deal with all the calamity that would come with my drug use. Mm -hmm. I mean, it reached a point where, you know, I was stealing stuff from the house and, and this, this is now the, the, the state, the later stages of addiction. Um, you start to steal things from your loved ones and, and in my head, you know, I would, I would steal something that I knew my mom would value a lot and in my head I would say, but I'll make a plan, we'll get it back tomorrow, but those tomorrows never came. Right. She knew she was missing yeah. stuff, she knew it's not the maid, you know, it's not visitors who came, she, she knew it's my son, but how do I deal with this? If, she, if my mom confronted me, I would either be passive about it or I would be aggressive. So it reached a point where she kind of just now had to let go. My, my 16 years of addiction, um, without a doubt, took my family hostage. Is that at what point did you go to South Africa? I'd run out of all chances. I'd been to rehabs in Kenya. When did you start to rehab? Like, so 16 years? My first rehab stint, I was 25. 25, okay. Mm -hmm. I was 25. And what had brought this rehab um, situation now to the forefront was... Um, so my parents knew this neighborhood was no good for me, or I was no good for the neighborhood. So, like every parent or loved one tries, you know, you try a geographical, which means moving the person to somewhere else. Right, where there isn't a lot of influence. Yes, um, but everywhere they would move me, I would find the dregs of society because those were my friends, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of it all. I knew my addiction was bad. When I would look around and I would see people drinking and smoking and I'm like, I know these guys by first name, but the only thing we have in common is these drugs. Mm -hmm. I don't really know these people. Because my friends in high school all kind of they either started uh, getting families, going to college, you know, advancing in life. And I was still in the neighborhood, stealing, uh, selling drugs, and I was getting older. They kind of distanced themselves from me. Did that hurt? The fact that you knew they were trying to avoid you? At the same time, I had childhood friends who we were in this addiction thing together. Maybe theirs didn't hit as hard as mine was because for many years I was drinking on top of trauma. They were drinking because they want to enjoy themselves. They were using the drugs because of enjoyment. I was burying my emotions in substances. And through, and through this timeline of, of 16 years, I had friends pass away who were in my circle from addiction. And that didn't open my eyes. I would say, well, my situation is different. I can handle this, I can handle this, which was kind of a lie because my life was falling apart. So what jump started the first rehab stay, I was drinking in Kisumu. Don't remember which town it was. Also one of the things addiction brings is a lot of promiscu promiscuous. Yes, promiscuity, yes. yes. So throughout this time, I got involved with a lady who was married but didn't disclose. Apparently her husband was hunting me down. <laughs> yeah, you could be killed. And eventually he caught up with me and I, I got stabbed 
My finger so is that all on. yeah oh really and it has no function as you can see but really he was going for my stomach and i grabbed it last minute and this was a rusty knife kind of where i can see my unmanageability of, of my addiction is that i get stabbed my finger is hanging off my my hand i'm bleeding all over the place and i sit back down and continue drinking like nothing happens um, eventually I lose blood and pass out and wake up in the hospital being stitched and they couldn't operate this finger because this guy is, he reeks of whiskey. Mm. We can't uh, give him anesthesia, he might die, so the best we can do is just sew it back on his hand and you know, wish him luck. And so this was the time that my mom was like, you know, you, you really have to accept this help that we're going to give you because now we can't deal. You almost lost your life just through a drinking, one, one, one night drinking incident, you know. So I was taken to a rehab in Homa Bay called Asumbi. I was in Asumbi and uh, at the time this was the place where they took people whose parents were fed up were taken there. And immediately I got there, there were already some familiar faces your old friends from places i knew so well and you know on the first night we're already smoking weed in in the rooms there no way and and in the room now i think it was four 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 rooms down there was a guy he was brewing changa at the time in the rehab yeah without anyone from the administration knowing they knew it's just they're profiting from it they're profiting from it there were counselors who profited from it and kind of brought the stuff in and there were other counselors who were like, well, they're not our kids, so I'm just doing my shift here, then I go home. I really don't care. And, and at the time, my mentality was not uh, that my parents want to help me. At that point, and at that point, my dad had already cut me off. He was like, I don't want anything to do with him. I think he was posted in Geneva at that time, to Geneva. And he told my mom, I don't want anything to do with him. If he comes correct, that's good, well and good. But for me, my son, I don't have a relationship with him. So I was angry at that fact. And then also my mom has brought me to this place where um, the conditions or the standards of living were comparable to maybe like industrial area prison. The only difference is we get to go outside and sit outside. Do you have lessons? How was it structured? Like you wake up in the morning? I mean, there were lessons, but I mean, 80% of, of the patients there were high. So are they really going to take in, you know, the value of these lessons? Um, and some didn't even do the lessons because they're hungover, you know, so. So for me, I looked at it like, OK, this is a punishment. I'm being brought here as a punishment. That was my mindset. But what I hadn't mentioned is before going to rehab, I'd done a stint in prison. Oh? I'd done a stint in maximum prison in the US. When did you go to the US? I went to the US back to my high schooling because I'm drinking, I'm smoking weed, total disregard for authority, teachers, I kept on jumping from school to school. There was a nuisance in class and we did a school play and it was about it was about Mary Poppins or something mm. that I regarded as very cheesy. And the guy who was directing the play, one of my classmates, I told him, look, let's make something funny. Let me dress up as um, the, the headmaster's wife they were both white, they were, mm. they were both from England. Let me dress up like her because I can imitate her. Mm. And this will be the funniest play ever. And he agreed and, you know, the play was a surprise. We didn't tell the teachers <laughs> what it involved, nothing. I just rolled on on stage and, you know, the whole school was in laughter. Even the headmaster's wife was in laughter, but he wasn't. So after the play, straight disciplinarian, I'm expelling you. You can't make fun of my family. 
Then I went to Imani School, Imani International School out mm -hmm. in Pika. When I got expelled, I spent some time at home. Now my drinking has become what it is. I go to Imani, which is a boarding school. And in my mind, I'm, I'm in this boarding school. In my mind, my mom has brought me here to separate me from the guys in the neighborhood. And this is a punishment. What we used to do at Imani was, you know, because you're allowed to order takeaways. Mm. The Debonairs guys bringing the Kenya cane in, the safari cane in. Oh, they would? Yeah. How? How would, you, how would you order the cane? We would buy a small pizza and then we'd buy the Kenya cane which would be hidden underneath. And even the, the watchmen never used to check. They're just like, oh, it's Debonairs, let them through. Wow. So my drinking now really began um, in this boarding school. But every time my mom would call, you know, I would manipulate her, oh, mom, I'm happy, unhappy, I'm, I'm, I'm homesick, you know, I want to come back, I'm depressed. Mm -hmm. And she gave in, I came back to the neighborhood, joined Brayside, and not only did I join, but half of now my friends in the neighborhood joined with me. So I'm with this whole group of friends from Kilalashua. Our drinking starts in the school bus in the morning when we're picked up. Wow. By break time, we're and already hammered. the driver hammered. doesn't do anything or he can't? We would either bribe him or he would get threatened. Because you have to realize we were also very violent mm. young men. I even remember one of my friends got suspended by a teacher. And we happened to run into this teacher in Lovington. And he was beaten up something serious. So we had that kind of reputation going. So now in Brayside, which is probably the only high school where I kind of hung in there, still getting menial grades, and my headmaster will tell me, you know, I know you can do better, but you're just caught up in something else. By the time I was uh, kind of finishing with Brayside, is when the headmaster said, oh, by the way, we got news that you guys were bringing drinks in school and I've got this empty bottle of safari can here but it's the end of school <laughs> there's nothing I can do and I remember him telling me you know you guys you should get serious help now before this thing takes over your life mm -hmm. but at that time I thought it was a big joke so moved on to Hillcrest and so we're going with the school bus to Westlands. Um, this was back in the days when teenagers were drinking in Surrey Center. Mm. Get off the Hillcrest bus and immediately meet my friends from Kilalashua who at Sarit and you know where this whole gang of Hillcrest plus Kilalashua people. It would just be trouble. It would be trouble. Now in Hillcrest, this was the first time I'd seen, I remember in the dorm scene, a British kid shoot up heroin and I was like, what's that? But I wasn't really interested because mm. I was like, needles, that's not my thing. And probably in my addiction history, that's the only drug I never touched just because of the needle factor. <laughs> this was a school where I saw people now using pills and I was like, what's that? They're like, these are ecstasy tablets. I have no clue what these things were. I'm in Hillcrest, we're about to do our final exams. And just as about, I'm about to do my final exams, there used to be, there used to be a lot of student lockers where, where students would put their things and this time cell phones were, people had cell phones, mm -hmm. people had iPods and I was stealing them. I used to steal them. The only people who I wouldn't steal from were my friends because they were also doing the same, we were right. part of the same racket. And no one found out it was you guys who were stealing. There was suspicion. There was suspicion for a long time. One of the head boys was kind of like investigating, but he was also afraid because these guys, you know, we can meet these guys at a nightclub and they'll beat me up. They were doing the investigation. The head boy, he, he was trying to help the head teachers, you know, get down to the bottom of this because there was a lot of stolen property and a lot of students were angry. And I would come with the stolen property back to Kilalashua, back to my dealer and like, hey, I have no money on me. But here are some iPods, here are some cell phones. Give me what you're gonna give me. I should give them to you. Yeah. For me, that was it. By the time I'm doing my final exams, and mind you, I've also gone to Hillcrest now with friends from Kilelesho as well. Mm -hmm. They're joining the school. By the time I'm doing my final exams, this was now the second year I was in Hillcrest. 
half of those friends have been expelled either for fighting or found with stolen property. So now it was like our days were numbered and our group was becoming like smaller. As I'm sitting down for my first final exam, the headmaster calls me. One of the head boys saw me hiding stolen property in, it, it looked like an abandoned locker, but it wasn't. Mm. And underneath there was a space. So I was putting all this stolen property underneath. And they found them. And they found them. Not only was I expelled, but I was blacklisted, which meant I couldn't go. Like if I went to Brayburn, they'd be like, no, we've heard of you. Mm. No, thank you. I think I tried to enroll for Brookhouse, they're like, no. Yeah, no school would accept you. And at that time, Brookhouse was taking like the baddest of the bad, <laughs> you know. But they were like, no, we've heard of you, you know, no, thank you. This had to be around 2004, mm. 2003. Mm. My dad got a posting to New York City to go work there as ambassador there. Mm. And my mom was like, you know, please just take him, you know, maybe he'll get right over there, you know, maybe he needs to be exposed to that, the world there, and maybe he'll get into college, you know, she had all these high hopes for me. And my dad was kind of reluctant to take me because it would mean for the first time in my life, he's the one responsible. The one responsible. So we went to New York, for me, this was a place that I heard about in the hip-hop songs, you know, I'd see on TV. For me, all I wanted was the gangster life. That's what I thought would be the and life. And your dad is a diplomat. And my dad is a diplomat, but I'm not putting that in any regard. And um, as soon as I went to New York City, my dad got an upmarket house in a Jewish neighborhood in Queens, New York. Mm -hmm. I remember walking out, kind of dressed the way I am, but like with more brighter colors, because I realized in New York, there are guns on these streets and they wear certain colors. I realized, and, I'm, and I know for a fact, I'm going into the drug zone areas to get my drugs. Mm. So I need to blend in, which means I'm going to dress like them. So immediately, you know, I had the bandanas on my head, the red bandanas, because there it's the blood, the blood gangs, they run the streets of New York. So I'm dressed in red, you know, which is their uniform, you know, it kind of lets the public know, hey, this guy is... And you're in Queens. And I'm in Queens in a Jewish neighborhood, you know, I would walk out and, you know, they would be dressed the way Jewish people are dressed and they would cross the road and I wouldn't think nothing of it. But I would hang out in the neighborhood where I know I'll find like-minded people like me, which was now Jamaica, Queens. I'll go to Jamaica, Queens, stand outside the, the housing projects there where the drugs are sold. And, you know, now trying to find out where the drugs, who, who can I chill with. And this is a dangerous place. People Did get you shot. Money? I mean, mm -hmm. I had money, but I was looking to make more. Okay. Because um, my ambitions, yeah, my ambitions were, you know, to get a big car. <laughs> I didn't even think of house first, you know, to get mm -hmm. a big fancy car, you know. And, and like all the drug dealers yeah. have in the movies. Yeah. So I was on the streets of Jamaica, Queens, um, and, and, and found some like-minded people there. And it wasn't long, you know, before I was walking around I used to carry guns for them because at that time I looked younger than my so they were like you know us guys are older we have like some prior cases if we get caught with these guns you know we're going to prison for life but you look like a young kid do so, they know you're from Kenya um at first I kind of kept that a secret okay because I didn't know if I'll be accepted mm. as an African. Because I was told, one of the things I was told going to America is you're an African, kind of keep that on the down low. Mm. Because people with it, a few people will love it, but most people will hate it mm. just because of the racism factor. Mm. Mm. Um, and so here I am, you know, standing in the projects, the, the cops would come, they would hand me their guns, I would hide them. Um, I remember one day 
my dad was coming from from work you know dressed nicely in his three-piece suits and i was in my gang colors um by this time i, I also knew a couple of guys who sell jewelry so i had like uh, gold teeth on you had the bling bling completely yeah. and so my dad came out of the he was using the bus he was like there's no re why should i get a car in new york you can't have parking it's a hassle to drive i'll just use the bus i'll use the subway so i came in the bus after him and i remember running after my dad i don't know what i was going to ask him but there were police now around the corner watching the police came immediately and my dad was walking ahead the police came and cut there was like a driveway mm. and i'm standing behind i'm running now coming towards the driveway they came and stopped the car and they pinned me on the ground thinking i was going to rob your dad and your dad did not see any of this no he saw but did he recognize you because you know now you had all this bling bling and stuff he recognized me but he wasn't going to help he wasn't going to help. Reason being, after it had all settled down, uh, now my dad was like, you see how you're dressed and see how I'm dressed. Do you blame the police for, for doing what they did to you? The way he explained it to me was like, if you were dressed like decently, it wouldn't have happened. But you were, you, were you able to see that even as he was trying to reason with you? In my mind, and, and, and now what I told him was like, in, in a very angry way, it was like, I want to dress how I want to dress. And so he, his reply was, okay, you can dress however you want to dress, but just know this is, these are the consequences. Because you look, you portray an image of someone who is going to do people harm in this neighborhood. And he was like, that's why even outside, I didn't want to step in. Did that break your heart, the fact that your dad saw you but did not want to do anything? I didn't care. You know, at that time I was young and my mindset was like, my dad is not cut from the cloth I'm cut from. The way I looked at it at the time, my dad is sucking up to the corporations. I'm the guy who's free over here. But obviously that was warped as I look at it now, um, being much older. And so, yeah, I was in New York because of my poor high school and, of course, incomplete records. I couldn't go to even the New York, what is it, the public. They were like, what does this guy want to study? Like, right. it looks like this guy is not interested in school at all. At the time, my dad's sister was living in Houston, Texas. Um, she was studying there and... My dad called her, like, um, listen, I don't know what to do with this guy. And he can't just stick around here. The way things are going, you know, he's dressed in gang colors. He's hanging out in Jamaica, Queens, you know. I'm, I'm fearing for him. Is there anything he can do in Houston? And my auntie told him, you know, by the way, there are a lot of Kenyans here in a similar situation, or a lot of Africans in a similar situation. Some didn't even go to high school, but they can get into a college or university here. In late 2004, I was on a flight to Houston, joined my auntie. You know, it was a big change leaving New York from, from the bright lights, you know, New York City to now Houston, Texas, where my auntie uh, enrolled me to Texas Southern University. First, I entered through the summer school program which they had, and already I was bored. <laughs> I remember looking outside and I could see on the campus there were some very high-end cars parked on the corners there, and these were like ex-students selling drugs to students and people in the neighborhood. Texas Southern University is a university smack dab in the third ward and the fourth ward of Houston, Texas, mm. which are like the biggest ghettos of Houston. So a lot of crack addiction, a lot of heroin addiction, you know, you're in class, you hear gunshots in the distance. For me, I thought this was the perfect neighborhood for what I'm trying to do. It was a business management uh, sort of program. 
And I did three weeks of it, and by the fourth week, I was now standing with the guys on the corner there, hiding the drugs under the um, electricity poles when mm. the police come, and you know, back into that life. At this time, I'm smoking weed, um, I'm drinking. I'd also met up with some, at the time, they were up and coming music artists. Mm. Because in the South, it was like a thing for every, for majority of a young black man, by the way, I have this CD, I do music. Like mm. a lot of people were into that. And so I thought, uh, maybe I can, I can do this music thing. Um, but I realized quickly I was in it for the lifestyle, not mm. the passion. Because mm. a lot of drugs is done in the studio, you know, a lot of sex in the studio. And for me, that was the life. So eventually, my gun colors are on. Now I'm dressed like a creep, and the creeps dressed in blue. And that's the dominant gang when you go to the south. By then my auntie, me and my auntie had a falling out. She was like, if this is a life you want to live, you won't get me mixed up in this. Right. You know, I'm trying to, I'm working two jobs. I'm trying to graduate and you're doing this gangster stuff that can right. get us into a mess here. This isn't our home. And I was like, listen, if, if you don't like it, at that time, you know, I was, I was selling crack near the school apartments. I told her, you know, I have a couple of thousand here. I'll, I'll get a place of my own. You know, I'm a man, I can live on my own. And I remember throwing all my belongings in, in one of my friend's cars and I was gone. Got an apartment near the campus, near the school campus, where people are shooting and stuff. That's where I chose to live. Things started to change drastically. I'm in America, I have no job, no form of employment. I'm selling these drugs, which are harming people. And you're aware of it now, that they're harming people? Which are harming people, and I'm aware. I can see the desperation of the people coming to knock on my door. So I'd go through phases where I'm selling crack cocaine, then like a pregnant woman shows up. Sorry, a lady who has just given birth has shown up with a baby. She wants to give me the baby for me to hold on to as insurance so that she gets money for the drugs. And this would, I'll give her the drugs for free and I'll be like, you know, I'm done with this. Let me just sell my weed and stuff. At least no one will, will, will reach this point of desperation. So that, that is very unlike, Jeremy, that's very unlike gang behavior where you, you still had a bit of compassion and empathy. Where do you think, where is that source of empathy and compassion coming from? I think the source of empathy at that point was the fact that I wasn't raised that way. Right. But the people around me, they were raised that way. I remember going to a friend's house. He was like um, what they call a triple OG creep. Like mm -hmm. he's been a creep since he was seven years old. I remember going to his house and, you know, the family pictures, you'd see his dad was a creep, his mom was a creep, his grand... So this is all he knows. This is all he knows, you know? So because of my empathy, it, it would reach a point where we would clash because they want to do certain violent things and I'm like, no, we can't. I'm not cool with that. So at this time also, you know, I'm under heavy suspicion. Uh, I didn't know that the Houston Police Department was wondering what's going on in this apartment here. You know, we're seeing all these cars pull up, gang members and stuff. My addiction now has reached a point where I'm also in them, with them in the cars as they're going to rob people for their jewelry, breaking into houses. I think the final straw for me was uh, when we decided to go rob a building. So we're breaking in, we're taking these computers out of the building and the next thing we know the building is surrounded. The police with shotguns and that was it. I'm sitting in the back of a police car wondering how am I going to explain this to my parents who had cut communications with for about four months at that time. Your mom, your dad, my mom, my your dad. auntie, you're all alone. I'm all alone in this. My first kind of instinct was I destroyed any ID I had with me. Just as they were about to arrest me, I destroyed my ID because my thinking was I don't want them to know I'm attached to my dad and he gets in trouble and this becomes a big scandal. 
So you're still very, your senses are still there. You do not want to get him into problems as a diplomat. Wow. So I went to jail as a John Doe. I just went to jail as a John Doe, made up a fake name and you know, now I'm in there, I have to survive. It's maximum prison. And they're like, this guy is an African, you know, he's robbed a federal building, like, he might be a dangerous guy. So there was that aura. But at the same time, I wasn't, I wasn't aggressive with it because I realized, you know, this is a place where if you act tough, you'll meet the real tough people and there's no escape. So my whole thing was, if you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you. But the thing is that for me, I'd done so many stints at Kilalesha police station, so many stints at Parklands police station, that to me, once I was in maximum prison in Texas, yeah, this is kind of a bad place, but also the food is not so bad. And compared to a Kenyan prison, you know, these guys are complaining. By the time my dad, you know, got wind of where I was and... How did he find out? Because you have your ID, you haven't been with your auntie, no one knows where you are, you're for all in intent and purposes lost. So my dad sent a private uh, detective from New York. You know, they always say a mother knows when her child is in trouble. Right. My mom was all the way in Kenya, yet the day I was arrested, she couldn't sleep. And she phoned my dad and she's like, listen, I have a gut feeling there's a problem. We haven't heard from him. What's going on? He's not with his auntie, so what's going on? So my dad sent a private investigator. First place, of course, they looked was the mortuaries, the hospitals, wasn't found. So the private detective looked around the last areas now where I was, which was the third ward. Yeah. And he saw the addiction. He saw people are strung out on crack. People are strung out on heroin. There's a big possibility this guy got himself in some legal problems. Mm. And so he came to the Harris County Maximum Jail in downtown Houston. And after some digging around, found you. Found me. So I was sentenced to nine years for the crime I did. I was, okay. I was 20 at the time. And so this was the point where I also realized this gang, gangster life is fake because the guys I was arrested with, they pinned the whole thing. It was this guy's idea, by the way, he's an African, you know. You know, they made up stories like he was going to kill our family, so we had to go along with him. And so these guys were getting probation and, you know, walking out of, of the, the, the cell and I'm just in there. And I remember one of the inmates telling me, you know, all these guys you came with, they're leaving because they put this whole thing on you. Fortunately, because of my dad's diplomatic job, the case, I wasn't even supposed to be arrested. Because you're under diplomatic, diplomatic immunity. Mm. And even had they known who I really was, that would have been the case. Mm. But because I thought my dad would get into trouble, ditched my documents, you know, so I'd been in jail for almost eight months. Eight months? Yeah. Because time goes by quite quickly when you're there. What were the lessons that you learned the eight months in prison? This gang thing that we thought were in this together, no, it's every man for himself once, you know, problems begin. So these eight months out of the whole 16 years of my addiction was the eight months I was, or seven months I was sober. Because this was an airtight jail. You don't even get cigarettes, you don't get nothing. So I also came to realize, okay, you thought you couldn't survive with these drugs, but you actually can. You actually can. That said, once I was released, I was back on the streets of, of Houston. I think I must have gone on a bender, a two-day bender. I ended up at my uncle's house for some time, because I had nowhere to stay when I left prison. But because I was getting into trouble, trouble, he had no choice but to kick me out. So I was on the streets of Houston. Before I was on the streets, I took refuge with the same gangs. You trusted them or you were desperate? 
I was desperate for a place to stay. Mm. And they have the drugs on there. But what had happened now, I'm no longer going on a ride with you guys because I'm super paranoid. I just want to be in the house. I want to smoke drugs and mm. this wasn't working for them. Right, because you are a free loader. Exactly. So I remember one night I'd passed out on the couch and I just got pulled out of one of the houses. This was in Southeast Houston. Got beaten up. By them? Yeah. Got beaten up. And the ironic part about this story was that the people who came and found me on the pavement bleeding were from the opposing, they were from a Mexican gang. These are the guys who took me to a hospital. And these are supposedly the enemy. So that was another lesson for me. The lesson being that... Your friends are your enemies and your enemies can be your friends. I finally got in contact with my dad and he was like, okay, I didn't realize there were a lot of problems for you there. Come back to New York. This had to be 2006, going on seven. I'm in New York, I'll buy my drugs, I'll go to Brooklyn, and drugs meaning weed, and buy, because it was winter time, I have my alcohol, and I'd lock myself in the house, because I'm paranoid, any sirens, I'm taking off. But yeah, the house must have been smelling of weed. It was a three-story house, so I'd smoke in the basement. And the basement was like a very dusty place, so he never comes down there. So I'd smoke there, I'd drink there, and then go up to my room and pass out. By the time he's come back from work, I'm in bed. But you know, I've cooked dinner, you know, I've washed the dishes, Wait, no questions asked. The guy must be okay. In 2007, my dad's posting ended. Well, that's all today in No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment. Thanks for listening. Join me again next Tuesday for part two of Jeremy's story as he returns to Kenya, where post-election violence rears its ugly head and compounds his trauma. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode You can find me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Also, please share the link in your circles and do rate me. You can follow me on Instagram, NoHeadPodcast. That wraps up what I have for you today. Catch you next time, my friend. May you learn to pause, think, and feel before acting out. And may you have non-judgmental compassion for yourself and others who struggle with addictions of any kind. Bye-bye.